Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. So does anybody uh, in here that is married um, make decisions differently than your spouse? Is that a thing in marriage at all? Like, that doesn't cause any sort of tension in, real, in marital conflicts. Or um, No, we don't have conflicts in marriage. We have discussions, right? We, we, have, we have growth moments, uh, right? But my wife and I, this might come as a shock, uh, we're different personalities. I don't know if you know this. Yeah, right? Totally shocking, right? Like, uh, and we tend to make decisions very differently. Are we the only ones? Like, I'm just being like, please help me. Everybody else lockstep, make decisions exactly the same way. Like, it's like, hey, I was thinking the same thing. We, but, so here's the way it works. So let me ask you this. Which one of us out of Tara and I do you think make decisions really quickly and like enjoy making them? Tara or me? Really? Come on. Is, that, is it that obvious? Is it that? Yes, Tara. I mean, she's just a, like, she's a decision machine. No, um, no, I tend to make decisions pretty quickly. And I might be really odd, but I actually don't dislike making decisions. I like coming in and be like, hey, we got to do this, 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 this. Are you that way, Brandy? You like to come in and be like, hey, these are the 10 problems that are done. Let's solve them. Let's get them rolling. You know, you put me in a, in a grocery store and it's like boom, 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 boom. Now, half of it we probably don't need, but I am so excited to, uh, to make those decisions. Now, my wife Tara, on the other hand, um, is it safe to say you don't love making decisions? It's not your favorite thing to do. And she takes a long time to process decisions. There are times where she'll come to me and she'll be like, just make a decision for us. And I'm like, that one. And I move on with my day, right? Um, so, but what we found is the, the way that we make decisions, uh, the, the way that she takes a little bit longer than I do is that we balance each other out really well, which has proven helpful as we strive to live our lives and lead our families together. Now, it did create moments early on in our marriage to try to figure out how we're going to do this. Like, I can make a hundred decisions in the time she makes three. The difference is 40% of mine are awesome. All three of hers are great. <laughs> right? So, but... But decisions are certainly a part of life, aren't they? And we all need to make them. The vast majority of the ones that we make are mostly little daily things with no real consequence, right? Like, what time am I going to get up? What am I going to wear? Uh, you know, we, I'm going to make the decision to brush my teeth. Please make the decision to brush your teeth, right? I've got you know, to do all these little things. Uh, but throughout our lives, we will come to major decisions. These are the ones that, that once they're made, they impact everything about us and they affect the overall trajectory of our lives. It doesn't mean that we can't come back from different decisions, but there's, it's like an asteroid. We're going this way, the decision comes and it changes us, of course. 
Think about some of these decisions. Who will I marry? Will we have children? What community will I seek to belong to? And how will that affect me in my life? Who or what will I worship and give authority over my life? Deciding on a career path. Will I be a Hawkeye or a Cyclone? That's a major decision, and make the right one. Hawkeyes, clearly, clearly. You, if you're a Cyclone, you can always repent. You can always change. Yes, it will change. Yeah, yes, yes, like, there, we can't take away your Cyclone-ness, but you can begin to walk a new path. That's like half my sermon. Like, I'm just, just being honest. Andy, you're a Wisconsin fan. That's point three on here. Um, just saying. Um, no, but in all seriousness, these are not the only ones, right? Like, like the ones that I listed. But major life choices. Now, now, now I hope I, I say this in a way that, that makes sense. These types of major life-altering choices, I submit, are fewer than some would like to believe but vastly more important than many of us realize. The amount of people that I've seen walk headlong into marriage and not really understand the consequence of what that decision is going to be for their life. Man, don't walk into that one too lightly. And we must not take these decisions lightly. In verse 13 of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus begins the conclusion to his masterful sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. This is what we have been walking through since March, I believe, right, Darren? About March? We've been going verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. And in this sermon, what, here's what Jesus is doing. This is kind of the major theme of the Sermon on the Mount. He, res, he is revealing to us the kingdom of God. And that he is the king of that kingdom. And he reveals to us how his people live as his people who have been brought into that kingdom. So he's revealing the kingdom. He shows us that he's the king of that kingdom. And here's how his people are to live as his kingdom citizens. And in this conclusion, which begins in verse 13, here's what Jesus does. Jesus calls us to a decision. Jesus calls us to a decision. And for reasons we'll get into later, the choices he calls us to, these are the most important things we will ever decide in our lives. And they impact everything about us. And I would even submit that the decisions that Christ brings us to at the conclusion of this sermon they ultimately provide the covering from which every other decision we'll make in our life is impacted by. These are the fundamental questions of life that will impact how I decide who I marry, that will impact how I decide the community that I'm going to live my life in, that, that, that will impact how I engage in my career, that will impact how we raise our children, that will impact what I believe my purpose in life is. Is These are foundational 
decisions we are making. And so if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. And I'm going to read this conclusion in its entirety. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to look at the fourth conclusion more specifically today. But I want to put this all together for us as we contemplate this conclusion. Beginning in verse 13, this is the word of God. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, or and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. These are weighty words. Darren, I love how you said it a couple months ago. Uh, like, Jesus can say more in like five words of worth and weight than I will be able to in this entire sermon. But what Jesus does here in this conclusion is he lays out four warnings, four decisions that we must make which determine everything about what we believe about God, who we are, and how we relate to others in the world. In verses 13 to 14, Jesus tells us that we must decide which path in life we will walk. Will we walk God's path or another one? There are only two paths. You know, this whole notion that all roads lead to Rome and, and there's, you know, there, there's a hundred different roads and all religions lead to the same place. And as long as it's a church and as long as it's neat and as long as, you know, there's an element of spirituality to it, they all lead to the same place. That is not what Jesus tells us. And either he's lying or other people are lying. But he is bringing us to a place 
where these two paths that he lays out, they arrive at very different outcomes. As a matter of fact, these two roads lead in opposite places. If we decide in our lives that, hey, I, I'm going to try a third path, or I'm going to try a fourth, or whatever number path, Jesus says, you're just deceived. You're just walking the wide path. Because there's only two. And the narrow path leads to life. And the wide path leads to death. So he holds before you what Moses did in the book of Deuteronomy. Will you choose death or will you choose life? And you can hear the compassionate heart of your Savior saying, choose life. I'm telling you so that you will choose life. I'm laying it out before you. You must decide which path you will walk. God's or another one. In verses 15 to 20, he then moves on and he talks about leaders and prophets in the church. And in a sense, here's what he's saying. We must decide who we allow to teach and to guide us. Because we need to be, we, you know, we, we, we need to be led. He, we, read it, we uh, read in Ephesians 4 when we walked through it in our Wednesday night that Christ has given leaders to the church, right? It's a gift of leadership that he's given. But yet, not everyone who claims to be a pastor or a spiritual person is trustworthy. Jesus actually says, no, no, there are actually wolves in sheep's clothing. They've got a smile. They make you feel nice. They say things that make you feel good. They teach multiple paths. They make, you know, they're just there to make you feel good or just to build up their own kingdom. And they know that to build up their own kingdom, I'm going to make this look really slick and nice. Just because someone claims to be a teacher or a prophet from God does not mean they are. When I first became a Christian at the age of 20, I thought everything that had the word Christian on it was awesome. And then I began to grow in my faith and realized, oh, there's a lot of garbage out there. There's a lot of bad teachers out there. There's a lot of things that are literally looking at what God has revealed and said, no, we actually don't want to teach that. We just want to like tickle ears. Jesus says we've got to beware of these things. These are wolves in sheep's clothing. Their teaching leads away from the truth of God and only seeks to build our own names. And we know true teachers from false teachers by the fruit that their life produces. And we must take great care about whose teaching we follow so that we are not led to the wide path. We've got to decide. What path will I be on? Who will I help lead and guide me in that path? And then in verses 21 to 23, Jesus tells us that we must decide what we will trust to save our souls. Will we trust in our own efforts and our so-called mighty works to eternally save us? Do we think when we stand before Almighty God that whatever religious activity we do, no matter how impressive we think it is, that standing in front of an eternal, holy, almighty God that will actually impress Him? 
that will actually move his heart to say, look how impressive my life was. Look at all the, th- look, I cast out demons in your name. I prophesied in your name. I, did all- I-, I went to church more often than not. Will that cause him to accept us? Guys, this is of utmost importance. You can even hear it in the words of Jesus. Trusting in our own works, no matter what they are, will only cause Jesus to say to us, depart from me. I never knew you. Guys, those are weighty, weighty words. Instead, Jesus says in chapter, uh, verse 21 of chapter 7, something very interesting. Look at what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Okay, now he gives us a path. So it's not on my works, but it's on doing the will of the Father. So what does that mean? Well, if we go to the Gospel of John, and if we had more time, we could unpack it through the whole Gospel of Matthew as well. But if we go to the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, Jesus is asked this very question. What must we do to do the works of the Father? What does he want from us? Have you ever wondered that? Have you ever sat there and go, what does God want from me? Isn't it great that it's laid out for us in the text? He's literally asked this. And here's what Jesus answers in chapter 6, verse 29, and in verse 40. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And then he picks up on that and he continues to just unpack that and teach that for the next uh, 11 verses. And then in verse 40, he says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So what is it that God requires of us to trust and to save us? Simply that when we stand before God, we have no appeal. We have no works of our own to lay before him. We simply point to Christ and say, I just appeal to him. He did the good work for me. He is the one that I need to save me. I'm a drowning man in a vast ocean. He is my life preserver. I cannot make it on my own. Eternal life is not earned by our works. It is not guaranteed simply because we exist. I know that this hits our sensibilities as people, especially as nice Midwesterners. I hear that. And I'll be honest with you. If I could give you another message, I would. Because this is not always the funnest thing to talk about. And churches that don't address this are wolves in sheep's clothing. We have no right to think God owes us heaven simply because we were born. Because here's what the scriptures teach. We have all rebelled from him. We have all been inherited the disease of Adam and Eve of sin, which means we want what we want, how we want it, when we want it. We want to feel good, and we don't want to be told that we stand before a holy God guilty. But that's what this book says. That is what Jesus says. And he's either a lunatic, a liar, or the truth. 
There's no middle ground here. But I know this, when I look at my own heart and the quietness of my life, I realize I really don't have any appeal to make before God. I get around people that are better than me and I feel worse about myself. Can you imagine what it's like to stand in front of a holy, perfect, eternal God? But eternal life is knowing the one true God and his son, Jesus Christ. We know him by his grace through faith, not a result of things we do, but because of what God in Christ has done. You can lay the burden down. God does not want you to feel a burden that your eternal life is in your hands. And you've got to, did I help enough old ladies across the street? Did I do enough good things? Did I go to church enough? Was I kind enough? Was I, oh, I know I kind of screwed up over here. Oh my gosh, how many good things do I have to do to overcome that? God's like, lay that down. That is not the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Christ, through his perfect life, that he lived on our behalf, perfect before the Father, in his heart, in his mind, in his conduct, in his emotions, completely sinless. And then he took his perfect life and he lays it down on a cross. Not because of something he deserved, but because we deserved it. And he substitutes his life. We should be in the place of death. He says, I'll stand there for you. What wondrous love is this. And then he dies under the weight of God's wrath. And he victoriously rises again. Showing that I am exactly who I said I was. I have defeated death. I have defeated sin. I have carried your burden and in me, you can have new life. New life of forgiveness. New life of knowing that you are free, not to, not to wonder if I've earned it, but knowing that I am just adopted in as your son and you just accept me. I don't have to worry anymore. I can be free because I have peace with you now. Not a peace that I try to earn, a peace knowing that I rest in the eternal Son of God who did it for me. He completed it. He purchased our redemption for us and we receive it by knowing that we need it. Admitting to him, I need you to do this for me and I'm asking you to forgive me and to give me a new life. And he will. He's not going to hold it back and go, ah, maybe, maybe. Let me see how many more times you go to church. That's not what God does. God says, oh, come in, come in. I've got life for you. I've got peace for you. I've got reconciliation for you. I've got a family to restore you to. I've got a kingdom that I'm going to deposit in you. And oh, by the way, I'll come dwell in your heart. And this leads us to the final warning, to the final decision that Christ leaves us with, where he says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall. Jesus calls us to make a decision about who we will follow. In his book, The Divine Conspiracy, author Dallas Willard wrote this. We have the quote on the screen. It's a little, it's a little long, so, so bear with me, but, but I think this is a great quote. It says, today, especially in Western cultures, we prefer to think that we are our own person. We make up our own minds. But that is only because we have been uh, mastered by those who have taught us that we should do or should do so. But we certainly did not come by that individualistic posture through our own individual and independent insight into ultimate truth. We did not come to the, he's saying this, we did not come to the conclusions that we are our own person on our own. Someone has taught us that. Something has taught us that. And thinking through whose disciple we are or are going to be, as Willard writes, I get it. It's very strange to our modern Western ear and sensibilities. Listen, I love John Wayne. Right? Like, I love when John Wayne is coming in as the lone gunman and he saves the town. Right? I love, like, like, you know, these action movies where you get the, the hero, you know, Maverick. I'm going to do it, you know, like, like we all want to be that guy, but what, what that is, that is, a, that is a veiled path that was really only meant for one, and his name is Jesus. He is the only one that could do things like defeat sin, death, evil, and the wickedness of my own heart and restore me back to God. He is the hero. Jesus is bringing us to a place of decision about who we will ultimately follow in life. Whose disciples will we be from this point forward? And Jesus is making the claim that we should be his disciples. That we should follow him. That's outrageous, isn't it? I mean, you look at the claims that Jesus puts forward here, and these are not the claims of a normal person. What gives him the right to do this? To present himself as worthy of us following him with our lives. See, here's what the scriptures do not allow us to do. To put Jesus on par with any other religious figure. Oh, you, you, know, so, you know, Gandhi was as good as Jesus. Buddha was as good as Jesus. Mohammed gave a very valid viewpoint on how to move forward. Or this, you know, uh, you know, these types of neo-spiritualists. No, no, Jesus doesn't allow us to do that. He says, follow me. There is two paths. And if you build your life on my teaching, you're on a rock. What gives him the right to do this? I'm going to lay out, as best as I can, the scope of how the Bible answers this question. And it's simply this, because of who Jesus is. 
He is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He is the unique son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the redeemer of the whole world. And he is perfect in every way. He is not just a mere man. He is God in flesh. Think about that. He is not just a moral example for us to follow, pointing us to a path of wisdom. He is the path. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the one who brings us to God the Father, he tells us in John 14, verse 7. He doesn't just reveal wisdom. He is wisdom. In him, we are told in the book of Colossians, are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He is the living word of God. Through him, all things were made. Through him and in him, all things hold together. And Hebrews chapter 1 says that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is simply unmatched in all of human history. No one has even come close or ever will come close to his holiness, to his power, to his beauty, to his majesty, and to his strength. He has overcome the world through his own sufferings and death. He is the fulfillment of every promise found in the scriptures. In him, God's mercy is found. Redemption is given, and he is the rock on whom we find an indestructible and firm foundation because it is rooted in his indestructible resurrection and character. He has defeated death. He has destroyed the works of Satan. He has overcome the world. He has purchased an everlasting salvation for all who come to him in faith, desiring to trust in and follow him with their lives. He is making all things new. And let me just tell you, in my own life, he has made me new. I am not who I was when I was 18, 19 years old. And it wasn't just a behavior modification. My heart has changed. My desires have changed. My affections have changed. Humans, we can't do that on our own. It is this Jesus who is infinitely more powerful and wonderful than I can even ever hope to describe with my meager words. It is him that says, Everyone who hears my words, everyone who hears my words and does them is like a wise man who builds the life, his life on a rock or the, or the, the house of his life on a rock. Our lives are built on this strong foundation when we hear his words and then obey them. It's not enough just to hear them, but we must hear them and plant them in our heart and not just drive by them. It always makes me laugh sometimes when I've preached at churches and they're like, you got 10 minutes, pastor. I got things to do. And it's like, how, how important is this to you? Sounds more like this is an entertainment thing for your benefit instead of bringing you to the eternal truth of God's word. You can't give an hour? 
of your life for that? When we live in light of them daily and have our worldview shaped by his words, when they are to us a rich treasure more to be desired than all the wealth the world has to offer. Wisdom is hearing and doing the word of God. Those who do this, Jesus says, are wise. And this wisdom is revealed in the trials and hardships of life. Yes, the trials will affect us, sometimes greatly. They will beat on us. But they will not fall because our lives are built on the indestructible life of the resurrected Christ and his word which lasts forever. Wisdom is seen in those who hear and obey Jesus. But those who hear only but don't obey them Jesus doesn't mix any words. You know what he says? They're foolish. And they will be seen for the, for the fools they are in the trials and hardship of, of their life. No matter how great the house of their life may look, no matter how clean and impressive one's life may be, when the trials of life come, the sand which is their foundation will erode away and cause their life to come crashing down. Jesus says that the fall of those who build like this will be great. It will be great because they've built on a foundation of disobedience to Christ, following their own path, trusting their own works, adhering to someone else's foolish wisdom, to not walk in obedience to Christ as they have no faith in him at all. Faith, is, faith that is not accompanied by works, the book of James says, is dead. It's not existent. Hearing and obeying Christ means we live in light of who he is and the confident expectation that we, he will fulfill every promise, which means that though we are, are, are perplexed and crushed and grieving, I know there's a greater hope waiting for me. I know there's a purpose to it all. Hear the message of hope that Christ gives. He's inviting you to find life in his name. I'll never forget uh, being in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia in, I think, 2006. September of 2006. That sound about right? And I was at this conference called the Luzon Younger Leaders Gathering. And there were 525 uh, Christians from over 120 nations gathered in this place. And we were looking at what is God doing around the world from a high level. It was an amazing experience. One of the speakers that they had at this event was a missionary girl named Heather Mercer. You should Google her name. Heather Mercer went to Afghanistan in 2003 with a, with a group of missionaries to go bring the gospel in the midst of war-torn Afghanistan to Muslims. And she's giving her life for these for, for this people group. Her stories are incredible. But one day she's sharing the gospel in the living room of a family and the Taliban breaks in and arrests her. And she finds herself in a Taliban jail in the middle of Afghanistan while the war is breaking out. And she is being uh, tortured. She is being interrogated for hours. She is being starved. She is being told every day that we're going to kill you. And she said, one night I'm sitting in my 
uh, jail cell all alone. And the, and the bombs start to fall in, uh, in the city that I was in. And in my jail cell, it was, just, I mean, picture, it was just, it was bleak. There was a bed, there was a toilet, and there was a little barred window up in the, up in the top corner. And she said, what? and then all of a sudden a bomb fell and all the lights went out in the jail. And she goes, I could see the flashes of the bombs dropping through the window. And I could hear the explosions and I was sitting on my bed and she goes, I had a fear grip me that I've never had in my life. I felt alone, I felt abandoned, I felt scared, I felt, what did I do this for? All these things that you could possibly, I miss home, I just want to go see my mom, just get me home. And she said, I sat there and I got so scared, I crawled under the cot of my bed in my jail cell and I'm just laying there, huddled in fear that I've never felt, almost to the point where she couldn't breathe, she said. And she said, it was in that moment, she said, the only thing that I could think to do in that moment was to say, Jesus, please come lay with me. Please come lay with me. I don't know what to do right now. Please, just let me feel your presence. And then all of a sudden, she started to think back to when she was a little girl on the porch of her family home growing up, where her mom and she would sit with the scriptures and she would memorize scriptures and she would start to sing hymns that her parents had taught her. And she sat underneath the cot of this bed, bombs dropping in the dark, and she starts reciting by memory scripture verses that she had memorized on that porch. She started to sing hymns that she remembered singing at church with her family about the great truths of God sitting under there. And she said, without being able to describe how this happened, I could tell you Jesus' presence engulfed me. And I went from an immovable fear to an absolute perfect peace. And she said, and I, it hit me later as God delivered me from that jail cell. What was it that, that, that happened in that jail cell? And she said this, all of a sudden, all the years of investment of building my life on the truth of God's word and worshiping him with his people and having the truths of God cemented in my heart when the storm of life came, what I cultivated in times of comfort, I drew upon in times of chaos. The storms of life beat on her, but she did not fall because she had cultivated a lifetime of being built on the rock. This is what Jesus is inviting us to. And so I have just a very simple question for you before we close. Are you a wise or a foolish builder? I don't care what clothes you're wearing, how much money you make. This is not about what's going on in your life. This is about something much bigger. And none of us can answer this question for you. Are you a wise or a foolish builder when you lay your life up against the words of Jesus? Are you just a hearer of God's word only? I pray you become wise and place your faith in Jesus, which leads to a new life of freeing obedience to him. I pray that we all decide to do this now and each and every day, for you will be shown 
to be wise and not a fool. And when the trials of life come your way, you will not fall either today or on the final day of judgment. Jesus is calling us to a decision. Don't make it too quickly and not take it for the weight that it is and move on. And don't suffer from paralyzing hesitation. Follow Christ and build your life on the rock. Let's pray.